No one has shown more contempt for other nations and for the well-being of their own people than the depraved regime in North Korea. And then the next thing you know, you're on this travelator, and it's this travelator to nowhere. You're on a travelator for a good ten minutes, just going up with nobody talking, you know, or only in hushed whispers, perhaps. There's music playing in the background, and and then you have to go through um, through an air tunnel to depurify you. I mean, it's just it's it's bizarre. And then the next thing you know, you're in this red lit room which is freezing cold because they do it to preserve the body and there's a glass case in the middle and, and Kim Il-sung's in there and there he is draped in the Korean Workers' Party flag and there's soldiers standing around with guns in case anybody does something and then you have to bow uh, on on his left side, his right side and behind his head not behind his... Uh, no, and behind in front of his feet not behind his head uh, that because that apparently would be uh, a grave insult to the dear leader the great leader, sorry and uh, and then you're out, and then you do the whole thing again for Kim Jong Il, just when you thought it was all over. <laughs> you do the whole thing again. Hello, and welcome to this podcast called My Mate Went on Holiday to North Korea. My name's Dave Smith. What follows is a conversation I had with a really good friend of mine called Luke Pierce, who back in 2016 told me just out of the blue that he decided to spend his holiday that year going to North Korea and as someone who's always been really interested in the country I just wanted to know everything about it I wanted to know about the people I wanted to know about the place I wanted to know what it was like being followed around by guards 24 hours a day um, so he very kindly gave me some of his time we've split it down into three episodes today's episode the first episode is called the journey it's about everything from deciding you want to go in the first place through to booking your trip getting on the train in Beijing entering North Korea via this bizarre bridge which only lights up halfway and via some abandoned fairground through to arriving in the capital Pyongyang. Episode number two is called Hotel Pyongyang and it's all about the capital city and the tour which he took in, discussing conversations that he had with the guides, some of the sights which he saw and what happens if you accidentally sneeze in front of the dead embalmed bodies of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. And episode number three is called Waving Goodbye. It's where Luke and I had a real opportunity to discuss the future of North Korea, what potential reunification might look like, and what might happen going forward for the country. So we really hope you enjoy it. Just a couple of things to say before we begin. The first is that this was recorded back in 2016, long before we were fully aware of the tragic circumstances surrounding the state torture and eventual death of Otto Warmbier, the American student who was taken captive during a trip to North Korea. Um, I think if we'd been aware of the circumstances at the time of recording, we would have discussed it in perhaps a slightly different manner. And the second thing to say is that Luke wasn't wonderfully well. He had a bit of a cough, but please forgive that. Ignore his coughing throughout. Ignore my inane interjections. We hope you enjoy it. This is My Mate Went on Holiday to North Korea, Episode 1, The Journey. Perhaps we should start by telling people how we know each other. Because we've known each other for kind of 10 years now, I guess, haven't we? Yeah. yeah. Um, so perhaps you take up the story. It would have been 2004 that we first met? 2004, we met, we arrived at King's College in Cambridge. And I suppose the very first time we would have met would have been having a drink together with our new director of studies and yeah. the, the politics cohort. We both studied what was then called social and political sciences. I certainly did politics throughout the whole degree. You did as well, I think. Or I or studied, yes, I studied politics all the way through, but also some sociology as well. 
which meant I got to do courses about, um, you know, kind of e- economic related courses and uh, stuff about the political economy of capitalism and things like that, as well as Japanese politics, which was which was probably my first introduction to North Korea. Actually, oh, really? in terms of being an external threat to Japan. Or? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then you went off, and, and we left in two thousand seven. Uh, we both moved to London. You went to work for TfL for a while. Yes, that's right. Uh, and now, perhaps you tell folk what you do now. Well, I had a very happy six and a half years working for TfL, uh, London Underground. And towards the end of my time there, I'd set up a little online shop uh, with my parents called RadicalTetal dot com, or the Radical Tetal Company. And I decided that if I spent more time on this business, that we'd be able to grow it, and it would be actually a really fun thing to do uh, with my parents. And, uh, and these are wonderful because I bought them for Christmas presents for people. So they're kind of <laughs> suffragettes, aren't they? And Keir yeah. Hardy, and 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 they're, they're progressive political slogans on tea towels. I've made that sound far less. <laughs> no, that's that's than they are. that's a good summary. But they're very well designed, aren't they? And, uh, mugs, yeah. fridge magnets, a ho- whole variety of kind of politically themed gifts. That's yeah. what we like to say. I kind of feel it's a sign of our age in that we both had Che Guevara t-shirts ten years ago, and now what we really want is a tea towel. Is yes. <laughs> so, so tell me about when you decided when you settled on North Korea for this year's trip. What was the what was the how did it start? And then I imagine you know. I don't know, you tell the story, but I imagine there's the idea and then there's a bit of time where you actually convince yourself, no, this is what I'm gonna, where I'm going to go. My, I, my cousin had been living in China for four years teaching English and I like the idea of just dropping in on him and going to see him because it's always better when you visit any country if you can meet somebody either who's a local or who's been living there for a while because they just know the best places to go, the experiences to have and what's a waste of time and not and everything else. And uh, so my plan was I, I, I would go to China and see him and I wanted to, to stretch myself a bit further and I'd read about somebody uh, online talking about an experience visiting North Korea uh, as part of his, his experience visiting every country on the planet and that, that popped the idea in my mind that maybe it was time for me to try something like that and so I started doing my research and found a number of different companies online that were, were offering North Korean trips and I thought... Uh, you know, I read the reviews and it sounded like an experience not to be missed, really. Because I think the, the important thing about this story is, I imagine folk listening to this will think, he must be mental, and anyone who goes and does this, but you're not, like, I've known you for a long time, and you're not bonkers, and you're, you're, like a, <laughs> you're a normal person who does normal things, by and large, and yet this is a totally extraordinary well, I... way to spend your summer holiday. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's not exactly a beach holiday, you know, it's, it's and it's not a relaxing holiday. No, I, I, I kind of... I'm at the stage where you know I, I want to be I want to be intellectually challenged a bit you know that sounds really poncy but uh, I want to I want to come away with something different something unique something that challenges me uh, something that's that's memorable and you know I've been to Spain many times in my life you know you you, you want to mix it up a bit but I, I think you know that said you've been nice to me saying that that I'm not crazy because no, yeah, I think you, you have to be a bit crazy to go to North Korea I think. Maybe, but I, th- I just think it's an important point, actually, that it's not it's not totally beyond anyone's capacity no. or, you know, remit or imagination to go. And if anything, I'm the crazy one, because when I heard you were going, I was amazed and wanted to know every detail and, and still do and have, have, have been fascinated in it a long time and geeked out on all of the documentaries online and everything like that. And, and, and 
yeah, probably have an unhealthy interest in it compared to some people who go. So tell me how, how you, so you decide you want to go, you go online, you look at a few companies, and there's companies who do this commercially and take people into North. How does that, yes. how does that work and how do you start engaging with them? Yes, yeah, so there are a number of companies online that offer trips to North Korea. Uh, but this is an interesting point in itself because it's a bit like in the supermarket, you'll be presented with multiple different types of the same product and there's a certain amount of skill in figuring out what the actual differences are other than the packaging in these things because when it comes to North Korea all of the trips to the country my understanding is are run by a government run and government owned tour agency uh, who decide the itineraries and make all the bookings and plans and hotels and everything and so what the on the companies you find online are is kind of front companies, if you like, for that uh, that state-owned company. And they are independent entities, uh, often run by Western entrepreneurs living in China or, or in other parts of the world as well. There's, there's a, uh, one based in the UK, there's one in the US and Canada and everything. But essentially... Uh, yes, yes, I can't remember what it's called, uh, but there is, there is a US-based one taking over US uh, tourists as well. Um, but, I mean, all of these are, you know, that's so that when you email people, you're dealing with people in your own native language uh, who are, will process your documents for you and everything else. Once you get in the country, the experience you have is essentially the same regardless of which company you choose. That, that's, what, that's what my research has led me to believe, and I haven't heard or read anything since then to, to disprove that. So just, just give us an idea of how, I mean, how much does it cost to go on holiday to North Korea? So the, the pound is very weak at the moment and, and declined halfway through this year, uh, which made it more expensive than it would otherwise have been. So imagine if you're not living in the UK, it's probably one of the best times to go to North Korea. Uh, it, it cost me uh, for a week, uh, it co- a, a six night tour in North Korea, all travel to and from Beijing included on the train, uh, cost 1,100 thereabouts. Pounds. That's British pounds, yes. Yeah, yeah. You, the f- first decision that you made, which I thought was a really interesting and worthwhile one, was uh, you took the train into North Korea, and you can either fly in, I believe, on our good friend Rupert Reed, who is trained to be a pilot and knows everything about airlines. He's horrified by Air Cairo, or whatever they're called, who have the world of the worst safety records and fly yes. over Russian jets. But, so you wisely avoided that and took the train up through the north of China and, and down. But that must have been fascinating because you get to see... You get to see all of the country as well. What was it like at that moment when you are waiting, I imagine, on the north side of the bridge? Yes, so the train stops in... I took the train in, and the train stops in Dandong, which is a Chinese city that no one's ever heard of, but it's one of these places with almost a million people living there. So, you know, it's the size of Birmingham, and uh, it's... The, the train stopped there and we were told right you've got two hours to go or an hour to go out and find a bathroom somewhere you know pick up some food oh and by the way if you go to the river you'll catch a glimpse of North Korea looking over so we all did that and you know as if in a in a, in a horror film or something you, you look over and you see this uh, the other side of the river shrouded in mist and these kind of uh you know, not much development over the other side, should we say? I mean, Dandong is one is a developed Chinese city. And there's high rises everywhere and new construction happening in blocks of apartments. 
and there's actually a there's a bridge that juts out about half, but right to the middle point of the river with a viewing platform at the end that's full of Chinese tourists going over to peer over Looking into, into the, the Hermit Kingdom to see what they can they can see. Oh, wow. uh, but it's visibly different. From, do, you, do you get a sense of this is visibly a different nation from the one that we're sitting? I mean, even even looking over from Dandong, yes, it felt like that. Just because, like I say, you couldn't you couldn't see any buildings. I mean, you might have expected something. I, I think I struggle to think of any developed area in the world where you don't have you, you, you can't stand at one side of the river and be in a very uh, you know in a, in a city essentially and then look over to the other side and feel like it's countryside um, and that that's essentially what it felt like I'm almost surprised that there's no propaganda value in, in putting something there I've, I've seen pictures yeah. of that bridge that you went over on, on the train which is literally lit at night halfway across yes. and the lights go out because that's the border yes well actually yes the the pro- it depends who is putting the propaganda on there for, for whom, right? The, you know, c- coming back on the train, leaving North Korea, you, the train, uh, the track kind of curves round. So you get Dandong on your left side for a big part of the trip. And you re- you're going through all these North Korean fields. And, and Dandong looks like this, you, know, you see all the high rises, this, this modern metropolis sticking out over the river. And that must be visible for miles and miles around to your average North Korean who can, you know, being nowhere close to Pyongyang, will never have seen anything like it. And how, how the charade is maintained that China is this poor nation, mm. uh, I, I don't understand it. Mm. But yes, there's an, imme- there's an immediate difference, there's an immediate cutoff. And actually nowhere was that more uh, conscious to us than when we were crossing over the bridge. The, tra- the train ekes across that bridge. And as soon as you're above North Korean land, North Korean territory, the first thing that comes into view for you is an abandoned fairground with an, an old Ferris wheel and, uh, and you know, everything's rusted and nobody there. And it's exactly like those, I don't know if you've seen those pictures online of uh, Chernobyl, you know, showing this abandoned city, but it just, it just looks like that initially. That's the first impression of North Korea. So it completely matches the stereotype. <laughs> it lives up to expectations in that sense. And then before you know it, you're stopping at a station and you're there for the next, we were there for about two hours, I think, while we get our passports checked and our bags checked and, uh, and everything else. What, what, did the, what does that look like? What does, you know, getting your passports checked? And is it, are they welcoming? Is it abrupt? Is it how does you know these are military people who are doing this to you? Yes, uh, there are a lot of soldiers uh, on the train platform, all standing there to attention, and you know you can get off the train and stand on the platform. You can even drink beer on the platform. Uh, there's somebody came past with a trolley selling us beer, but you're certainly not leaving that station or or going far from there. Yeah, there's, there's no, nobody turns up and says, hey, welcome to North Korea, guys. Um, <laughs> that's for sure. The, 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 the um, military type personnel, I say military type, I think they're an extension of the army, but presumably a customs division of it or something. They, they turn up on the train. Uh, they, all your passports are taken off to be processed for an hour. And, um, and then they'll come back on the train and start searching your, your bags and wanting to see your phones and your cameras and that type of thing. And what they're looking for it, we were warned beforehand by, by our Western guide who was with us from the, the tour company. Uh, what they're looking for is, uh, first of all, pornography, uh, anything that might be deemed indecent images. You're not allowed to take that into North Korea. Uh, they're looking for any books about or articles or media about North Korea. Uh, you're not allowed to take any of that in either. 
and they were also... Didn't you get in slight trouble with a book? Ah, yes, well, <laughs> yes, well, I was, I was asked by uh, one of these, these guards, uh, they, they came to our kind of cabin on the train, and they, he just said, book, book, and um, people would, would, would show him various books that they had or something, and he looked at me and he said, book, and then I said, no book, and then he decided to search my large case, and he went through it, and he found a guidebook to Shanghai, and so he picked it up and waved it in the air for everyone to see, saying, book, book, and then everybody immediately starts going in their cases and taking out their guides to China and uh, all the other places they've been travelling in the world. None of us were stupid enough to have taken a guidebook to North Korea into the country, so we were okay on that front. But uh, but they were, they, they, were, they were reasonably, you know... And, and certainly they, they were on the hunt for some specific things. Who else is on this train with you? So there's your tour, tour group of, of which there's, what, 20-odd 20 20 odd people on the train, I guess? Yes. Who else is on this train? The the train was actually was pretty full, actually. Uh, there were some Chinese tourists on there, for sure. Uh, but I think the rest of the people on the train were North Koreans who were coming back from business trips to China. And I know this because... Uh, in the queue for leaving Chinese, departing Chinese customs, um, we, I spoke to uh, some North Koreans who were standing in the queue behind us, and we, we swapped passports and looked at each other's passports, a couple of young lads. And, uh, these and are they, young North Koreans? Right? These are young North Koreans, yes. How and, old are we talking? Uh, they, were, they were, I would say, mid, no, 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 late 20s, late 20s. Uh, well, there were two, the two lads were in their late 20s, but they seemed to have some kind of minder woman with them who stood there completely expressionless, but you know, watching over us and, and every interaction. And she was probably in her 40s, I think. I mean, I, I was hard to get much out of them. And, and a general theme for speaking to North Koreans in general is, I, I think the fact most of them don't speak English uh, is, is, is reality, and the English is limited. But you're never quite sure whether that's just being used as an excuse not to reply to a certain question. Because you know, a lot of North Koreans do have good English, and, uh, and it, but it seems to fail them at certain key moments. <laughs> and, uh, and I wasn't sure, but you know, I was happy to just have a conversation with these guys and ask them as many questions as I thought suitable. And I gather that they've been in China for some kind of business, um, which I think is, is something that is tacitly allowed by the regime, uh, by certain pre-approved people. And they had, certainly if they're going in via the official route like this, they, they, weren't, they weren't going out without permission, that's for sure. The guy showed me his passport and he must have had about 15 stamps there going backwards and forwards between China and North Korea. So clearly this was something that he did on a regular basis. Mm. And so you, you, your train pulls out and you then take the journey down through, for anyone who doesn't know the geography, nearly all of North Korea, really, because Pyongyang is only 80 miles north of the DMZ or something right, yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me strange that you, you you go on a tour which is highly, well, I mean, we'll get into it, but it's highly regimented. You only see things that you're supposed to see. You're told not to photograph certain things in the middle of the showcase capital, which they don't think is appropriate. And yet you're allowed to come in on a train in daylight hours, you said, uh, through through the entire country. I mean, what was that like? Did you feel it gave you an insight into things that you weren't supposed to see or wouldn't have seen otherwise? Or Yes, so we, we took this train through North Korea to go to Pyongyang through the countryside in the middle of the day and I'd been told beforehand and warned by plenty of people in the UK oh you won't get to see any of the poverty in North Korea it'll all be hidden from you you won't get to see any real life and uh, and you'll have a totally artificial experience and yet absolutely the first 
thing that, that was drawn to my attention was the, the countryside and the poverty that you see in the countryside uh, going through. And there's, there's, you, you can't, you might be able to, you know, prettify certain areas of the capital city or the hotels that you stay in, but you can't change an entire nation overnight, uh, not unless it's real. And going through the countryside, you know, you see a distinct absence of any machinery, even though you're traveling through farmlands almost the entire time. There are no modern combine harvesters or tractors or anything like that. Uh, you, you you know you were seeing bales of hay everywhere, um, and I th- I think also rice growing areas that had been harvested. I think was a lot of what we were seeing, but you see people kind of you know bending over in 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 rivers, washing. I saw people washing clothes in 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 rivers, and um, uh, people walking around. Lots of people cycling around. Uh, and what I didn't see until we were pretty close to Pyongyang was any cars whatsoever. We travelled for a couple of hours before we saw any cars. What was the housing like? Yeah, it was. Some of it was two story, but it was mostly single story concrete uh, houses. Uh, you know, it looked like fairly sturdy stuff, uh, but you know, they did. It didn't look like that. You know, you didn't see kind of modern villages and towns and things and. Uh, uh, Certainly, the roads, the the few roads that we did see, looked very poor quality. Uh, I mean, it looked, you know, for anyone who's travelled through the third world, it felt like we were going through a third world country, essentially. And then, and then you get to Pyongyang, you arrive at the central station. Now, central stations in any city are always interesting, and they're often pretty grotty. And like the, if you think of King's Cross, or have you ever been to the, the station in Naples? Oh no, my God! No. It's like the end of the earth. Like it's, you know, it's where <laughs> all the, all the, all the evil, fun things go to play. Uh, and in the, some of the stuff that I've read about North Korea, at least, it's it, during the height of the famine. It was a it was a real focal point for people as well. What was it like pulling into the terminus in Pyongyang? Well, we were glad to finally arrive and finally have this uh, this long journey behind us. Although actually, travelling on the train had been quite fun. We'd we'd had some North Korean food and drank lots of North Korean beer, which was nice. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, it was it. We we got out of the platform, and the first thing that struck me was how dark everything was. There were lights, but they were clearly on some dim setting, or or the bulbs were really bad, or something. But there was just you know there was clearly they were clearly having power problems. In fact, the whole as we'd have pulled into Pyongyang uh, and going through the city, we'd noticed that it had been getting very dark, and that the street lamps you know weren't always on and that kind of thing. So so that was the first thing that struck me. But it was an it was a you know kind of you know high ceilinged reasonably grand looking station old you know it wasn't like the the very modern ones i'd seen throughout china which were built for capacity of many thousands this was clearly a station designed to take people in and out of uh, in and out of pyongyang and there weren't many people traveling in and out of pyongyang that's the impression i had anyway and were people amazed to see you who weren't in that train and in that area or really or were people amazed to see us or surprised to see us? I, I, I got the imp- in the station. I got the impression that they were they're fairly used to having tour groups arrive and pass through quickly. We were ushered out through a side entrance, uh, which I thought was interesting because presumably we weren't meant to interact with locals in the into the, the 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 main hall, the central area. And as soon as we were in the car park, we were ushered onto a coach. Uh, there were a few people milling about in that car park, but you know, no one that we kind of we kind of saw and this was a funny thing about North Korea actually is how 
I mean, people do. If if you go you go in China beforehand, and in China, even in the big cities, people will stop and want to take their photo with you. And you know, I was asked to uh, in in Hangzhou, I was asked to hold somebody's baby and have my photograph taken with them. And and people will be sneakily checking you out and secretly photographing you and stuff. And it's because you know, for a lot of people in China, they've not seen any tourists, and 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 maybe they're maybe they're internal Chinese tourists from one city to another, and in their their city further inland, they don't see many tourists. So there's this fascination with with people of different races and and cultures, you know, as it would be for me if I didn't live in London, no doubt. But the strange thing was that in North Korea, tourists were even rarer, and so people were even less likely to have seen a tourist, and yet there was generally not much interest in us at all. People not weren't looking at us. Not much interest or too scared? Well, absolutely, and, and that's, the, that's the kind of the assumption that you make, that people don't want to get involved, uh, because stopping on the street to have a chat with a stranger is generally something, well, certainly a, a, a Western tourist is something that doesn't look like it takes place. But it, the question is, what are they afraid of? Because uh, are, are locals afraid of the consequences of doing something like that? Because they're afraid of getting in trouble, that it would be disapproved of by the government? Or are they, af- are they genuinely afraid? Because supposedly a lot of the indoctrination that they've grown up with has taught them that mm. we might be Americans who are going to attack yeah. them with bayonets and uh, kill their children and, yeah. and things. You know, If you look at some of the, the racist propaganda that people grow up with, over there, that's the message that's being put across. I don't want to skip ahead too far, but it's a very <coughs> point though for you to, to tell the story that you were telling me earlier about when you got into a taxi, hmm. potentially, because I mean, it's easy to it's easy to conceive that people aren't scared and perhaps they're disinterested, but that would that would imply otherwise, wouldn't it? Perhaps you could just tell that one quickly. So, after a few days in North Korea, I, I and and with these government guides following you around and everything. Uh, Part of me just wanted to see where the boundaries lay a little bit in terms of what we could do. And I wasn't going to do anything illegal or problematic or anything. But but I just, I was getting a bit frustrated with the fact that you'd come out of the toilet and they'd be waiting for you there and everything else. And I actually I had a bit of rapport with our guides and I said to one of them, you know, what, what would happen if I, if we were standing outside a restaurant about to get on the coach. And, and I said to one of the guides in my group, what would happen if I opened the door and sat in that taxi there? And she said, oh, we'd, you'd go home or something, ha, ha, ha. Or, or, you know, we'd, or we'd take you out and go back to the hotel or something like that, she joked. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that sounds reasonable. That doesn't sound too bad. It doesn't sound like, like death by firing squad. So, so I went and opened the door for this taxi and sat in the front seat and turned to the driver and said hello. And this man looked at me and he didn't say anything. He, his eyes widened and his face went white. He, he looked to me to be in great fear and he immediately opened the door stood outside the taxi and and kind of waved his hands in the air and what I think he was saying was look here's proof I'm not going to drive away he was showing somebody who wasn't going to drive away presumably our guides who then came to my door and opened it and beckoned me out of the cab and and I complied I came out of the cab and and then that was it. There was no telling off. There was no discussion. There was no, Luke, why did you do that? Or anything like that. We just got on the coach and it was as if it never happened. And that was it. And what presumably, well, seemed like a major event in the life of this taxi driver was just considered to be a did complete he, non-event. Did any repercussions? Did you see anyone? Did anyone say anything to him or anything? No, and, and, and they wouldn't have because it was clear to everyone that I had just... <laughs> 
acted totally out of out of anybody's control. I'd done something that's totally normal in any other country in the world, third world, first world, wherever. There is nowhere in the world where you can't go up to a taxi, open the door, sit in, and and and, and ask to be taken where you want to go. Uh, maybe the I don't know. I haven't found them yet. Mm. But in North Korea, that <laughs> that is a unique event, and it's something that certainly as a tourist you're not allowed to do. And in the life of a local, is something that doesn't happen. It seems. I love the idea that somewhere in Pyongyang that night in some, you know, a 19th story of some god-awful apartment block, yeah. some guy came over and said to his wife, you will never believe what happened to me today. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And so with that, we come to the end of the first episode of My Mate Went on Holiday to North Korea. Thanks ever so much for listening. Do be sure to tune into episode two, which is called Hotel Pyongyang, in which Luke tells all the stories of touring around the North Korean capital, gets into the intricacies of the bizarre Alcatraz-like hotel in which they stayed, and explains what it's really like to be confronted with the embalmed corpses of two of history's greatest monsters. One more huzzah, and we're out. My Mate Went on Holiday to North Korea was written and produced by Dave Smith. It's an E14 production.